Welcome to the Disability Sport Info Show, the podcast that explores academic knowledge about disability sport. My name is Dr. Chris Brown, and I'm an academic with an expertise in disability sport. Each episode, I focus on a specific topic of disability sport and speak to academic experts to understand the area in more depth. So join me and listen to the Disability Sport Info Show who get an expert view on disability sport. In this episode, we will critically assess the empowerment potential of the Paralympic Games. Is the Paralympic Games a source of empowerment or disempowerment for disabled people? To help us consider this question, I'm delighted to welcome Assistant Professor Dr. Danielle Pierce to the show, who will be discussing the literature on empowerment potential of the Paralympic Games. Dr. Danielle Pierce is a renowned expert in the field and is a former Paralympian herself, having represented Canada in wheelchair basketball, winning a bronze at the Athens Paralympics in 2004. Danielle, welcome to the show and thanks for joining me today to discuss the empowerment potential of the Paralympic Games. I think it's fair to say the International Paralympic Committee is keen to push the idea of the Paralympics as having the ability to empower disabled people and to affect positive changes for disability in society. But there are some who question whether the Paralympics is really as empowering as the IPC and others suggest. So to start off, I and my listeners would be keen to understand what do we mean by empowerment or disempowerment when discussing the Paralympic Games? And in what ways can the Paralympic Games empower or disempower disabled people? When we think about empowerment, we kind of want to think about it at multiple levels. So on the one, we tend to conflate sometimes what's good for individual athletes Uh, what's good for the collective of Paralympic athletes and what's sort of good or empowering for disabled people in general. And so we're talking about impairment at the individual level. I like to think about something uh, like Foucault would call degrees of freedom. (laughs) So one way to think about that is what are sort of the range of choices an individual has in their life? What are the kinds of different ways that we can act, think, be as individuals? What's sort of our possible range? And so I think it is very possible at the individual level to think that particular Paralympic athletes are likely sometimes feeling empowered by their Paralympic journey. Right? It's very possible that they have new career opportunities opened, that people who may not have had opportunities to travel, for example, may have accessed it through parasport, that people who may have felt isolated in a small community may have met other disabled people uh, and found potentially a dis- disability consciousness through that or a sense of community. So I don't want to take away the sort of ways that uh, people's individual life chances may be bettered by their experience as an athlete. And I certainly, I've experienced some of those things myself. But also, I think anytime you're dealing with elite sport, you're dealing with an incredibly disciplinary <laughs> uh, regime, right? I mean, as an athlete, and I think as a team athlete, I can speak to just how much of your life is controlled by the, that team, by, by the coaches, by the program, um, the things you're not allowed to do. Uh, 90% of your time is dictated by someone else. I have a kind of impairment that can be made worse by overexertion. And despite having agreements about what I would be doing based on what would not harm me long-term, those were rarely recognized when a game needed to be won. There's just so many times where we get set up in a situation where it felt like Actually, as an athlete, my degrees of freedom when I was an athlete were incredibly limited. <laughs> you know, I didn't uh, attend my grandma's funeral because I wasn't allowed to you know, go home from a tournament. Um, those are the things that kind of restrict also our choices. So I think at the individual level, we can talk some empowerment, some disempowerment. People can make those decisions. But I think what I'm more talking about is at a collective level. So when we think about the collective of Paralympic athletes, what I'm talking about when I think about empowerment is 
to what degree do athletes have agency within their own lives and sports? Um, to what degree do uh, disabled athletes get to make decisions about what ball size they play with, uh, with the rules of the game, with the kinds of structures they're playing within, with uh, the classification systems and when those change, right? The kinds of that the world of parasport around them, to what degree do they make changes? And this, of course, I'm drawing off of the larger disability rights movement when we talk about the difference between uh, organizations for disabled people and organizations by disabled people, right? Where a bunch of people who are not disabled themselves have started organizations to quote unquote help disabled people. These are charities, the people who have full control and often are paid (laughs) good money to run these organizations are actually not disabled people themselves. And there's some question whether these organizations actually increase the life chances and possibilities or empower in any way disabled people. And the Paralympic Committee has a long history and I think continued history of being an organization for disabled people and not by disabled people. And in fact, the the leadership that gets heroized often about those who started the Paralympic movement and, um, and built it people who get credit for that often we're not giving credit to any disabled people disabled athletes who you know had a pretty significant role in the development of their sports um we erase them from history but also they've often been pushed out held out actively fought against them being in positions of power within the paralympic movement so until the Paralympic movement basically has a requirement that at least 50 percent of the leadership are disabled it will always be an organization for, and it will always be non-disabled people being paid and given uh, and having and having the power to make decisions for disabled people who often don't have a lot of agency in their own lives and sports. And then the last question is basically, does the Paralympic movement empower disabled people in general? And I think on that level, um, it is a resounding no. I think the evidence is quite strong that the Paralympic movement, the, the support of a handful of elite athletes has not, for the most part, increased the life chances of disabled people globally. And I think there's a good argument against even within cities that have held the Paralympic Games. Often hate crimes against disabled people have gone up. In the case of London, for example, um, Paralympic movement, IPC has taken you know, on sponsors that have created disability in massive numbers and that have continued to oppress and actually been organizations whose entire job is to oppress disabled people uh, in many ways, if we take Atos as an example, context of London. So um, I think I would argue a resounding no to, <laughs> to the Paralympic movement being a force of good in disabled people's lives globally. Some really interesting content there, Danielle. I think there's lots of avenues I'd like to explore. First of all, you have a strong conviction that the Paralympic Games isn't empowering for disabled people generally. I was wondering what evidence we have in the literature to support this view. Are you able to briefly discuss the evidence we have to support this position? I've certainly written on this before, but if we look at even like some of the major sponsors for the London Games, we know that there were massive protests by disabled communities around two sponsors in particular. Atos, who at the time of funding the Paralympic Games and London putting a lot of money into it, was cutting disability supports for disabled people across England. There's certainly a lot of uh, research articulating and giving evidence for leading to death and incredible uh, lowering of life opportunities, life chances for thousands, (laughs) if not more, of disabled people. And it was not only, I mean, Atos didn't only work in England, and you can see these same kinds of things happening now in Australia. So taking on sponsors whose essentially job it is to delimit the life chances of disabled people and allow states to not support disability rights is, I think, 
pretty atrocious. There's also uh, taking on sponsors who were the the culprits who owned the companies who were in charge of the Bhopal massacre, uh, which is a massacre that happened, a massive um, uh, chemical incident that happened in India, and that caused incredible amounts of disability and also death in that community and have never been properly um, supported or recognized. And again, the Paralympics have decided to keep these on. So I think there's a sort of pretty robust evidence about that they're taking money from and, and getting support from organizations who are definitely not in the business of bettering the lives of disabled people. But on a more global level, when we think about like how the Paralympics has in, in larger the relationship with the International Olympic Committee and their desire to create a sort of sellable Olympic Games has um, diminish significantly the number of, of classifications. And this has not been uh, evenly distributed. So the classifications that have been um, taken away are generally those that involve people who have more significant impairments. And certainly um, David Howe would be someone who has written more extensively on this than I have. But to the extent that um, like the IPC has had for years, and I would say decades, pushed out those with intellectual disabilities from the Paralympic Games and the Paralympic movement more, more generally, have really pushed against, um, I'd say, the vast majority of disabled people. So when we think about even who has a disability <laughs> in the world context, uh, the Paralympics serves an incredibly narrow percentage of that. Um, and I think an increasingly narrowing percentage <laughs> of, of the kinds of even impairment types, let alone we're sort of dealing with elite members of that group and often group members of the group who can afford expensive equipment. So it becomes kind of... I would sort of argue a freak show of, of, of a particular sellable form of disability. It sells the idea of inspiration and overcoming. And this idea is essentially that individuals can overcome any kind of barriers in their way to be successful. And the, the impact of that is that we're not actually looking at removing the barriers and the incredible kinds of violence, um, attitudinal problems, policy problems, architectural problems, a really significant difference and a really harmful one between this sort of, oh, look, look at these people who, who have all these resources, have minimal, often minimal impairments, single impairment types, very narrow range of impairment types. Look at how they can overcome everything disabled people can overcome. We don't need to give them supports. We, we can cut back on the kinds of accessibility initiatives we're doing because they can simply overcome. And in the end, that incredible, that harms the vast majority of disabled people for whom are inaccessible, uncaring and ableist um, societies harm on a daily basis. Again, some really interesting content and multiple threads I'd like to explore if we had more time for this discussion. But unfortunately, we don't have enough time to talk about all of those things. I'm really interested in your discussion about the increasing marginalization of athletes with severe impairments in the Paralympics. And you've explained why this is the case. I'd like to focus now on your thoughts about the marketing campaign in the UK by Channel 4 to promote the London 2012 and Rio 2016 Paralympic Games. For London, there was a strong focus on positioning Paralympians as superhumans, while for Rio, Channel 4 focused on the achievements of disabled people with a range of different impairments, focusing on the notion of, yes, we can. Both marketing campaigns were praised, but there were also criticisms, particularly from some disability activists and commentators. Please can you explain your thoughts on these campaigns and also explain to our listeners what these criticisms were? 
So I think the first thing I want to say is that I, I think there's a way to look at this, which is, are the Paralympics bad or good? Are they disempowering or are they empowering? I'm much more useful. I'm much more interested in the question, to what degree are the Paralympics and these particular campaigns useful and dangerous? And so it's much less helpful, I think, to try and categorize these things as sort of one thing or the other, right? So trying to avoid binary classifications. Yeah. And of course, I do this work not because I want to throw all parasport under the bus. I actually think there's a big difference between whether Paralympic Games empowering and can parasport be or disability sport be empowering. Mm-hmm. I think those are actually two entirely separate questions. Yeah. Any more than the Olympics somehow represents all of sport, the non-disabled sport, right? Uh, there are all kinds of issues at the Olympic level. The big thing about these kinds of campaigns are, yeah, okay, they drew a lot of uh, interest. People were sort of excited about it, all this sort of thing. They, they may have may have drawn more people to the Paralympic Games. They may have been useful in these ways. But it's certainly it's frustrating the degree to which people who are running these campaigns, I mean, there's been writing for 30, 40 years on things like inspiration porn, uh, on things like uh, super cripping, and the ways that this can be just incredibly harmful for the for most disabled people. What's really interesting about supercrit narratives is that they do two things at the same time that seem opposite to many things. But one thing they do is by definition, they depoliticize, right? They focus on what bodies can do and they don't focus on what the barriers are to people participating. And so this thing does two things at the same time. The first, it lowers expectations around disabled people. So this idea, if you look in the superhumans video, you have like people breaking world records and running. And in the very next shot, you have them like brushing their own teeth. <laughs> and like in this weird way, it like absolutely really diminishes the incredible athletic accomplishments that people are having, right? It's the same thing to break a world record as to brush one's own teeth. And so, yeah, it diminishes the actual achievements of people. Um, it kind of lowers expectations in a weird way where it's sort of like, wow, you brushed your own teeth, which doesn't mean that like, and also that if one doesn't brush one's own teeth, somehow that has some sort of impact or statement (laughs) on one's value, right? So again, independence here becomes the most important kind of value at the heart of this, which for a lot of disabled people, interdependence is actually the the valued and supported way of living. So yeah, it depoliticizes, it lowers expectations, it actually diminishes our accomplishments in really significant ways, but it also sort of um, ties this, the valuation of disabled people to this idea that they can uh, achieve and they will overcome these kind of barriers to achieve these, these to become Olympic athletes. Uh, and it's, it, it means that people who do not do that or who cannot do that, because of course this is structured around very limited ranges of disability, um, come to be blamed for their own um, dependence upon systems or dependence on uh, with other people. So the superhuman campaign is sort of almost the perfect example of all that, right? With, with, with jazzy music <laughs> thrown in. Look at all the things that we can actually do. Amazing things, brushing our own teeth, teaching. And then and similar with it, yes, we can. I think this is sort of like a really, yeah, I think building again this idea that, that disabled people are, are incapable and that, and that the valuation comes when they can independently do things that are valued by non-disabled people um, strikes me as a fundamental sort of I mean, again, it would, it would run counter to any kind of activist move that could ever possibly may, be made in the name of disability. And indeed, here's where we go back to empowerment is any activist moves that have been done against the Olympics or Paralympic Games, or sorry, the, against the Paralympic Games and the Paralympic movement, or even within the Paralympic movement, have been quickly squashed by the Paralympic movement, right? They're not actually interested in hearing what disabled activists have to say about 
how to empower disabled people or what activists within the parallel movement have to say about how to make the parallel movement more accountable, uh, more empowering, more affirming for disabled people. For London 2012, for the first time in 32 years, the BBC were not broadcasting the Paralympics. Instead, it was Channel 4. And Channel 4 made a big effort to get as many eyeballs and as much focus on the coverage as possible. So when we're considering the superhuman campaign, who are these adverts actually aimed at? Are these adverts targeted at non-disabled people, first and foremost, in order to get as many people watching the event as possible? And do you think there is an increasingly close relationship between the Olympic Games as an event and the Paralympic Games as an event? And if the Paralympic Games is moving closer towards the Olympic Games as an event, does this have an impact on the empowerment potential of the Paralympic Games, do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is again where it's helpful to detach what is empowering for the Paralympic movement (laughs) is potentially different than what's empowering for Paralympic athletes as a class, which is potentially, Mm. which is definitely different than what's empowering for disabled people which is definitely, you know, uh, attached differently to what's empowering for particular disabled athletes, right? So were these these campaigns good for empowering for the Paralympic movement? Yeah, probably. (laughs) They brought in money, they brought in all those things, right? Great for the Paralympic movement. But again, the Paralympic movement is not run by disabled people for the most part, (laughs) right? Those are the people who are benefiting off of or from this this kind of success. So it was great for, I would say, we have to think of the IPC like the IOC as a corporation. We need to think of it as something that is money-driven, that, that's primary purpose. Olympics' primary purpose is empowerment, right? I mean, the, the IOC and the IPC have, have banned activists' articulations <laughs> by athletes at the games. This is not, an, this is an organization that is, I think, foundationally against movements for social change right the the world order the the corporations making billions of dollars this is in the best interest of the olympic committee and the international paralympic committee and not in the best interest of most disabled people the vast majority of disabled people certain paralympics paralympians particularly those who did well in london and were from the uk i'm sure benefited greatly from the greater visibility again that broadcasting did not broadcast all sports equally (laughs) <laughs> Those are particular kinds of athletes that we're going to get access um, to that limelight and celebration. And so they may have been empowered by it, but that's actually quite a different thing to say. So the Paralympics, I mean, the metaphor I use is essentially, can you imagine a feminist, a radical feminist organization that was really for empowerment of women selling calendars of porn to make money, right? Yeah, great. They made lots of money. They sold lots of calendars. Great. But like they did it by throwing <laughs> the kind of some significant principles. Now, I mean, porn can be great and can be empowering, but probably not the kind that's going to be used to sell it at a mass level. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think it's similar, right? We're going to use these things that disabled people have been and disabled activists have been very clear or harmful for the purpose of increasing the empowerment of a movement, which is not equatable to the empowerment of the people. Um, and so I just think we need to keep those things separate. And when we talk about the IPC and the IOC, the IPC is increasingly going to become this corporatized entity. It has always been led by non-disabled people. Um, there have been some disabled leaders within it, but when we think about the kind of history, and I think the more aligned it becomes with the IOC, uh, certainly some folks like Eli Wolf and stuff have argued the importance of no longer having two games 
And you can just imagine what is going to be cut when those two, if those two games were ever to merge, it's, it's not going to be men's 100 meter wheelchair track. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So increasingly as it moves away from a participatory um, multi-disability model to a selling um, arm of the Olympics model, the more it is going to undermine any kind of funding of those kinds of other sports at a grassroots level. And that's what I care about. I actually don't care about what happens. I don't, I don't think the Olympics or Paralympics will ever be either forces or spaces of, of, of major social change. <laughs> Any serious Olympic scholar will tell you the same thing, right? I mean, if you go to a scholarship on Olympic, there's a lot of, I mean, the critical scholarship is significant, right? There's a lot of critiques. All of those critiques of the Olympic model committee, everything with the Olympics hold identically true about the Paralympics, right? Somehow we spare, those those scholars spare the Paralympics with the exact same critiques. Um, and so I think we need to be really holding the Paralympics accountable in the way that we hold the Olympics. But the only reason that sports scholars haven't is because there's the sheen of their empowering disabled people that somehow the Olympics are about corporate interests and the Paralympics are somehow about social change. And I think that has to disappear. We have to hold them accountable and we have to critique them because if there's any hope of the Paralympics becoming something that could actually be a positive force, <laughs> then we need to do this work. And I think where my investments lie is that unfortunately these things trickle down. So the kinds of things that get funded in a country like Canada in terms of disability sport are those that go to the Paralympics. And they get funded more if they do well at the Paralympics. And so the kinds of changes that are incredibly ableist at that level trickle down to impact every disability sport opportunity that exists in our country. And I'm assuming many others as well. And so there's a celebration of this going to this model like the Olympics, like, well, apparently has been paid the same amount for a medal as Olympians are, you know, and there's a celebration of that. And I think that is a terrible, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, great. The individual Paralympians, that's great. But increasingly imagining that disability sports um, intention is to gain medals <laughs> um, at the parent level is um, terrible. And I think it's terrible for the Olympics too. Why are we designing our entire sports systems around 0.1% of athletes? You've already touched upon this point when answering some of the other questions that I've posed, but I was wondering if we could just focus specifically on the role of technology in Paralympic sports and whether that is a source of empowerment or disempowerment for disabled people. When you come and you think about the sort of larger question of parasport, there are a couple other things going on. In some sports, by definition... <laughs> Uh, it's going to be, things are going to be always won by the richest countries and by the richest athletes, right? That there are particular sports that in which if you cannot afford the incredibly expensive technology, and remember some of this technology is trademarked, not everyone can access to it. Um, you have this uh, incredible divide that has already existed around parasport in terms of um, the kinds of funding people have for accessible infrastructure and things like that, that is just being multiplied by the kind of ways that technology drives capacity within, within specific sports, right? So that's at play. So it's, it's a definitely a force of inequity. So that's great. I mean, if you want to do this and Paralympic committee should be using all these billions they're getting from corporations to equally fund each country to ensure that their 
top athletes have the same access to technology. I mean, like if we think of this in a way of if, if, if justice were in any way, if the discourse of justice environment that the Paralympic movement uses were in any way actually real, <laughs> that would be the easiest possible policy to fund device, right? But of course they don't because it was never about that. And then I think we have this sort of idea of like whether the technology is sexy, right? And, and so the selling of particular sports around this technology is really interesting. And one of the things I find most interesting about it, if you look at like the history books written on the Paralympics by non-disabled people always, um, you'll have this, this thing where you'll notice the only pictures are people that you can recognize as being disabled. <laughs> so even when they use people with visual impairments, they'll only choose the sports where there's a specific blindfold being used or something. So people have to be made legible as disabled before they can be understood as sort of a Paralympic athlete. And so one of the bonuses of technology is it does this thing where it makes someone legible as disabled, but in a way that can be sold um, and packaged in this sort of sort of sexy way that a blindfold can't necessarily do, right? And so, yeah, I think it does these sort of two things that make it more sellable. Um, if you were to look at, you know, um, as Howe has articulated, like athletes with cerebral palsy, uh, running, there's no technology. And if you just take a still shot, you can't necessarily, disability is not necessarily visible on bodies. And so that is not a sellable thing. And this is where my argument has been at some degree, we're still using kind of freak show techniques where we want to heighten and in some ways exaggerate the visibility of disability to market on bodies to make it a gawkable kind of feature. Um, yeah, so I think technology is not in itself a problem um, but I think there's all kinds of ways that within the kinds of political structure and problems we're in, it's being leveraged in ways that increase the kinds of inequities and the maldistribution of opportunity and, and empowerment, <laughs> as opposed to using it in ways that could, could potentially have the opposite effect. It's been great chatting to you today, Danielle. It's been really interesting to learn more about the empowerment discussion. Lots of different topics have been covered and I know I've learned a lot as a result of this discussion. I hope you, listener, have also taken some insights from our chat today. So all that's left for me to do is to say thank you, Danielle, for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been really interesting, like I said, and I really look forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks very much. Pleasure. That's all we have time for, listener. Thank you for listening to this episode. Stay tuned for the next episode. Until then, goodbye. You've been listening to the Disability Sport Info Show, academic insights into disability sport.